Well, I invite you to open your Bibles uh, with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 3. And we'll start in verse uh, 16, which is kind of in the middle of a section that Peter is uh, trying to encourage the saints that are suffering. Suffering various trials, suffering persecution, but he's also encouraging them to be prepared because more is on the horizon. So this is kind of the main overall point that uh, Peter seems to be addressing. So I'd like to uh, actually pick it up, and I'm going to start reading in verse 13, just to establish kind of the context where he has come from, and then we'll pick it up from there. So again, uh, I have the privilege of reading for you God's inspired or God-breathed Word. So listen to it with joy and with faith in your hearts. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God wills it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God, having put, been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit in which also He went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. I'm going to go ahead and stop there. But uh, we're moving into a very difficult section of 1 Peter to interpret. Uh, It's it's extremely challenging. uh, And uh, probably next week we'll kind of dig into the different uh, interpretations of it and kind of grapple with that whole issue Uh, But I want to try to stay on focus what I think is his main point and emphasize that this morning. Because again, what Peter is doing is he's addressing these believers. Some are already suffering. He anticipates that more suffering is is, uh, coming their way. And he wants to encourage them to stand firm. So he's told them already that uh, if they suffer for righteousness... They are blessed, he says that in verse 14. He tells them also in verse 14, don't fear their intimidation. Don't be fearing men. In verse 15, he says, but rather sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts and always being ready to make a defense of the hope that you have. So that's what he's told them so far to encourage them to stand firm in the midst of suffering and persecution and afflictions. But now he's going to add some more things starting in verse 16. And he will say, keep a good conscience. 
when you suffer. Keep a good conscience. And then secondly, he'll say, and look to Christ. And look at what the end result of his sufferings were. Because he was exalted. And in effect, what Peter is saying, though he doesn't come right out and connect the dots, he says, this is what will happen to you as well. The end result of your suffering will be exaltation with Christ. And so he encourages them to look to Christ and His exaltation after His own suffering as somewhat of a model for what we will participate in as well. So let's kind of break this down. Those are the two major points now that he's going to emphasize in verses 16 through 19. So let's begin with his emphasis on the importance of a good conscience. He says in verse 16, and again, I'm reading from the New American Standard. Yours may read a little bit differently. But he says, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. So he says, keep a good conscience. Now, Every man has a conscience because it's tied to the work of the law that was placed in our hearts by virtue of creation. So every man has a, has a conscience. The conscience is basically that God-implanted ability to evaluate the moral quality of our thoughts and our actions so that our conscience will either approve of what you're doing or thinking, or it will accuse you of what you're doing or thinking. That's the inner law of God, bearing witness, helping us to evaluate our lives, whether it's pleasing to God or not pleasing to God. Now, of course, our conscience has been damaged by sin. It's kind of like a window that has become so dirty that it doesn't let the light shine in. And our conscience can become so defiled and dirty by sin that the light of the law of God doesn't shine in to expose the things that it should. Sometimes the Bible speaks of an evil conscience. Hebrews 10.22 An evil conscience is one that approves that which is bad And accuses that which is good. It's just the opposite. That's an evil conscience. It doesn't work right. It's working contrary to the law of God. The Bible also speaks of a seared conscience. Paul spoke of that when he wrote his first letter to Timothy. Chapter 4, verse 2. That some consciences can become so seared that they don't work right. Seared. What happens when you burn yourself? Or like when a, you know, if a, if a cattle gets a brand and it just sears the flesh and it burns all the nerve tissues so you don't have feeling there anymore. And a seared conscience has so committed itself to violating the law of God that it becomes numb to its own sin so that the conscience doesn't function, so we don't feel conviction and we get a hardened heart. That's a seared conscience. So a good conscience is the inner conviction 
that we know that what we're doing is in line with God's Word, God's law. A good conscience understands and believes that what I'm doing is out of a conviction that this is what the Bible teaches or this is what I should believe and I'm in line with that. And so your conscience bears testimony with you in a good way. So that's a good conscience. Again, a guilty conscience is one that knows that what I'm doing is wrong, but I'm doing it anyway. I know I shouldn't be doing it, but I'm still doing it. Or I do it and I feel guilty afterwards. That's a guilty conscience. What Peter is exhorting his readers is that when you're under fire, when you're under persecution, when you're suffering for righteousness, keep a good conscience. And what he means by that is don't give in to the temptation to compromise your faith. Don't give in to the temptation to go ahead and do what is wrong to please men because then you will defile your conscience and you won't have a good conscience, you'll have a guilty conscience. So even if you're being slandered or reviled, he says in verse 16, keep a good conscience. And those who revile your good behavior in Christ, they will be put to shame. You won't if you keep a good conscience. So don't let the pressures of the world, don't let the threat of what they're going to take from you or or what they might do to you, cause you to violate biblical principles in your life. Keep a good conscience. Live your life, think your thoughts, do what you do, in light of being obedient and faithful to God, not worrying about what men might do to you. Keep a good conscience. A great historical example of this is Martin Luther. So Martin Luther was excommunicated by the Pope in the year 1521 and was ordered to appear before an emperor at the Diet of Worms and and to recant his beliefs. So Martin Luther got safe travel promises from some of the governing leaders, so he decided to go to the Diet of Worms and there they laid out all of his books. And they wouldn't actually debate him. They just said, you need to recant. You need to deny what you believe the Bible teaches and say that it's heresy. Say that it's wrong. Say that it's false doctrine. And it's interesting his response. Part of it goes like this. Unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. What an incredible testimony of a man who faced great loss. There were death threats against him. Imprisonment. Losing everything. But he kept a good conscience. His conscience was bound to the Word of God and he would not deny that. And he kept a good conscience. And by the grace of God, of course, the Protestant Reformation was launched 
initially through much of his efforts and blessed by God, recovering the gospel that had been lost in the Roman Catholic Church. But he stood firm. His conscience is captive to the Word of God. And that's what Peter's saying. Keep a good conscience. Don't let them tempt you or entice you to sin or do something that will displease God because of their threats. Keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. So keep that good conscience. When we oftentimes, I think, we are tempted in our own world to violate our conscience. We know that we shouldn't go that way. We know we shouldn't give in on this principle. But we are tempted because our conscience is weak. And a weak conscience fears man more than it fears God. And it brings in a divided heart which will tempt us to respond sinfully in the midst of suffering. No one wants to suffer. But a lot of times we'll deny the faith, we'll deny Scripture, we'll deny our convictions because of the fear of man, the fear of suffering. So Peter is, is encouraging these believers to keep that good conscience. And then he adds to it, in verse 17, for it's better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. So now he's saying basically that this is something that you might have to endure. Back up in verse 16, they may slander you, they may revile you, they may attack you verbally, and at this point, apparently, a lot of the persecution they were enduring was verbal because he mentioned slander and being reviled. But he says that in verse 17, it's better that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. It's also interesting in verse uh, 16 that they are reviling their good behavior. They're not reviling Christians for bad behavior. They shouldn't anyway. Well, if they're doing bad behavior, I guess it would be okay to revile them. But they're reviling them for their good behavior in verse 16. Their good behavior back then may have been that they refused to go to the idolatrous temples and worship all the pagan gods. And they were maybe reviled and slandered because they weren't worshiping their gods. And some of them... Were even uh, slandered as being atheists because they didn't believe in their God, so they must be they must be atheists. Some crazy accusation like that. Maybe they were out doing good works in the name of Christ, and because they were doing it in the name of Christ, they were being slandered and reviled because they weren't doing it in the names of whatever gods that might have been uh, looked to back in that day for the source of these good deeds. Or maybe when the believers did not return evil for evil and showed this gracious humility in enduring evil without retaliating, then the culture could have looked upon them as being weak and slandered them for being humble, which was not a virtue back in that day. 
whatever it might have been, they were being slandered for their good behavior. Today, we stand for the life of the unborn from conception on. We can be slandered for good behavior, for standing up for life and offering the hope of the Gospel to any woman who has had an abortion to know that there's forgiveness in Jesus Christ, but it's sin. And we can be dishonored for that. Or affirming biblical marriage as opposed to gay marriage. We can be certainly looked upon as troublemakers or socially dangerous or even potentially terrorists for just good behavior, for believing and upholding what is good in God's sight. But again, in verse 17, Peter is emphasizing that it's better to suffer for what is right, for doing good, not for doing evil. Eventually, those who revile you and those who slander you, they will be put to shame. And that could be in this life, maybe if some of them are convicted of their own sin and they come to faith in Christ, or, or possibly it could be the end time judgment when they are put to shame. At the end of verse 16, the idea of being put to shame involves being dishonored and disgraced, and that certainly will happen on the day of judgment. On that day, they all will certainly see that they were in sin and they will pay for their rebellion against God. In verse 17, notice, however, that Peter also throws in this phrase, for it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. If God should will it so. Because ultimately, Peter is acknowledging that all suffering is under the sovereignty of God Almighty. And it's better if God should will that you suffer for doing what is right rather than He wills that you suffer for doing what is wrong. Because when we do something wrong, obviously we're just getting the consequences of our sin we do if we suffer for doing what is right then god gets the glory for that but in either case if god should will it so it's god's will that ultimately is in control of these things god is sovereign over all of the sufferings in your life and that ought to give you hope and that ought to encourage you if he's not sovereign then god couldn't have stopped it if He's not sovereign, then, then the devil got the upper hand and, and you're just suffering. But, but God is just there on the sidelines seeing the disaster take place before His eyes. No. God is sovereign. He's in control. And one of my favorite quotes from Spurgeon lays this out, this truth out. Spurgeon says, Trials are a part of our lot. They were predestined for us in God's solemn decrees and bequeathed us in Christ's last legacy. So surely as the stars are fashioned by His hands and their orbits fixed by Him, so surely are our trials allotted to us. He has ordained their season and their place, their intensity and the effect they shall have upon us. God is in control. 
whatever sufferings, whatever trials, whatever afflictions you're going through, God has a purpose in it. And His purpose for every one of His children is a good purpose. It's a good purpose. It's going to work for your good and for His glory. Whether we see the good now or not, He has promised that He works all things together for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. And that takes the edge off of our suffering. That gives meaning to our suffering and pain. That means that God has a a purpose in making me go through this. A purpose that will be for His eternal glory and my eternal good. Therefore, I can persevere and endure it because I know that my loving Heavenly Father has His hand upon me. And His hand is upon you. And He will guide and direct it to accomplish His good purpose for your life. That's a tremendous encouraging thought. And Peter is encouraging these believers who are suffering, acknowledging God's will. If God should will it so. Now obviously Peter doesn't deny the role of Satan in some of our troubles and afflictions or the role of evil men. But they are ultimately under the sovereign control of God Almighty. Satan couldn't do anything to Job apart from God initiating it and setting the boundaries in which Satan could afflict Job. And the same with us. So the first thing that Peter is saying to these believers who are suffering, for righteousness, back up in verse 14, if you suffer for righteousness, he's saying in the midst of that, keep a good conscience. Don't be tempted to do what is evil. Do what is right. Keep that conscience good in the sight of God. And then next, in verse 18, he now turns their attention and our attention to the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 18, he says, and I've got uh, my translation up on the screen. For Christ also died for our sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Now again, this is an extremely challenging passage from here on down. And we'll kind of work our way through it, Lord willing, next week and probably the week after. But the first thing that He says in verse 18 is that Christ also died for sins. And obviously he's talking about he died for our sins. He offered himself as an atonement, a sin offering. And notice in verse 18, Christ died for sin. So all of our sins, the magnitude, this massive conglomeration of all of the sins of God's people were laid upon Christ And he suffered, some translations say, or he died for sins. He bore the penalty as our substitute. He suffered, he died, he bore the curse of death that our sins deserve. Peter goes on to say that this is once for all, and this is not once for all men, 
This is once for all time. It, his death only occurred once. That's the point. It wasn't repeated over and over and over again. He died once for all. In other words, never to be repeated again. Once for all time is the idea. It implies that it was completely sufficient and perfect so it didn't have to be repeated again. The animal sacrifices of the Old Testament had to repeat it over and over and over again because they couldn't actually take away sin. But Christ as the perfect sinless substitute He offered His life on the cross and He bore our sins and died once for all time. The author of Hebrews emphasizes this when he says that Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation. There is no re-sacrifice of Christ. He died once for all time because His death completely fully satisfied the Father's justice and wrath. So it never has to be repeated again. When the Protestant reformers understood this, they stopped participating in the Roman Catholic Mass. Because it was a bloodless, but a sacrifice in which Christ is again offered for sin. Couldn't do it anymore. Unbiblical. Peter goes on to add that He died the just for the unjust. Christ was just. He was righteous. He was holy. He had no sin. He died for us. We were the unjust. We were the enemies of God. We were the sinners. We were the ungodly. We were the unjust. So He took our place on the cross that He might bring us to God. And what a wonderful statement. Because... Many of the readers of Peter's letter were Gentiles. They had been saved out of the Gentile world. And the Scriptures are very clear that by nature, Gentiles are far from God. We are far away. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. And as Paul says of Gentiles by nature, they are children of wrath. They are without hope. They are without God. We are far, far away from God. If you envision the tabernacle of the Old Testament, God's presence was in the Holy of Holies, the back hidden room inside the tabernacle. And where were we? That's where God's presence was located. We were not in the outer room, the holy place. We weren't there as Gentiles. We weren't even out in the courtyard. We weren't even in the camp. We were way, way out in the wilderness running in the opposite direction. That's where we were. But when Christ came and died for us, He died to bring us into the very presence of the Holy God who created the heavens and the earth. Jesus Christ paid our debt. He bore the wrath of God so that we as sinners could be forgiven that whoever repents and puts their faith in Christ alone can be forgiven and ushered into the presence of God. He brought us to God 
So now we can have fellowship with the living God and we can pray to Him and we can love Him as our Father, not as our Judge. This is what Christ did. He brought us to God and we are so blessed because of it. Christ, Peter goes on to say, was put to death in the flesh. And this is just a reference to His death on the cross. His human nature died on the cross. That was not a defeat, by the way. That was a victory in and of itself for us in life that He accomplished God's purpose for sending Him from heaven to earth. Remember, even in the early accounts that Christ came that He might save His people from their sins. Matthew one twenty one, And He did it. It was a great victory. A great success. But then look at the next phrase. This is where now we start getting into some of the challenging stuff. But made alive in the Spirit. New American Standard puts Spirit as lower S. Made alive in His human Spirit. Would be the idea of this. Um... This is problematic on many levels. I must say, what we're entering in now, uh, again, as I've emphasized, is very challenging to interpret. Martin Luther, when he was reading and studying this passage, said this about this section that we're entering into now. He said, this is a wonderful text and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament so that I don't know for certainty what Peter is talking about. So a lot of commentators kind of end up on that, not really sure that even their interpretation is accurate. But the word spirit in the Greek, they don't have capital letters. So it's like Peter couldn't put a capital S on that to indicate that this was a Holy Spirit. So it's up to translators to make that determination. Does the Spirit refer to a human spirit or to the Holy Spirit? And it could refer to either. So it's a, it's a question which one is in view. Obviously, the New American Standard thinks that Christ in some way was made alive in the Spirit, in His human spirit would seemingly be the idea. The problem with this is that the word made alive is often used a bodily resurrection, and I really think that's the best way to view it here. It can, on a few occasions, maybe used a regeneration, but so what are you saying? That the human spirit of Jesus somehow died on the cross, and then it was born again or resurrected again? Uh, that gets into a lot of charismatic false theology that I don't think that's what this is saying. And besides, how did His human spirit die? I mean, on the cross, right before His physical body died, what did Jesus say? Father, into Thy hands I commit My spirit. So His spirit was very much alive when He's on the cross. So in what sense could His human spirit have, have died? And that's why I think it's probably better to interpret this the way the uh, NIV and the King James does by making this a reference to the Holy Spirit. He's made alive by the Spirit. So this is a reference to His bodily resurrection. 
So I think that's probably the best way to interpret that. Uh, The idea of being made alive in the Spirit does not refer to any intermediate state uh, like between Jesus' death and His resurrection on the third day that referring to something that happened in the intermediate state when His soul is separated from His body. This, this terminology doesn't really, can't really refer to that idea very well. So we're talking about something that Jesus did after He was resurrected, not during the time when His body's in the tomb and His soul goes off, His spirit goes off and does something. I don't think that's the right direction for interpreting it. So I'm, I'm inclined to go with the NIV and the King James Version on their translation here. But now we go to verse 19. In which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. So who are these spirits that Jesus now raised from the dead before his ascension? But he goes and he makes a proclamation to these spirits now in prison. Are these human spirits? Are they demonic spirits? Again, the commentators are hold to both those different views. So I'm going to table that issue for, for a while and deal with it maybe more next week. But I just want to say it could be either human spirits or demonic spirits. But Christ goes and He makes a proclamation. He's resurrected from the grave. <clears throat> He's been resurrected. And he goes and he makes a proclamation. Now he doesn't go and he preaches the gospel. This is not talking about any second chance for the dead. But he goes and he makes a proclamation. And what's the nature of that proclamation? Well, it's probably having something to do with his victory. His triumph over the grave. His ultimate proclamation of of judgment that will occur on the last day. Something along those lines. It's not, a, it's not a second chance preaching of the Gospel. So what we know, and this is where Peter's going with, with Christ, he said, look, Christ has suffered. You have suffered. If you suffer for what is good, that's how Christ suffered. He suffered the just for the unjust. He suffered for doing what was right in God's eyes. Now you've suffered that as well. And you may be tempted to be discouraged, but look at Christ. He suffered in a similar way. He suffered unjustly. He suffered for doing what was righteousness. But look at the end of His suffering. Look at the result of His suffering. He was raised from the dead. And he pronounced a proclamation of victory and triumph over his enemies. And you will share in that also. I think that's the main point of this whole section. So if you drop down to verse 22, to get to the very end of this, look at what Peter emphasizes again. Christ is at the right hand of God having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to Him. So he ends this whole section with, look at Christ. He suffered for doing what was righteous. He, he was obedient to God. He suffered. 
But look at the result of it. He didn't stay defeated. He didn't stay suffering. Why, he was exalted and now he's at the Father's right hand and he's put all angels and authorities in subjection under him. In other words, the chapter ends with this triumphant note of Christ the Son of God who suffered, but then He triumphed. And that's the picture Peter wants to put in their minds. You're suffering now. You're going through persecution now. But keep a good conscience because ultimately you will share in the victory and triumph of Jesus Christ. That is your hope. That is your destiny. So don't be downtrodden by your suffering. Don't be discouraged by it. Because you ultimately will join Christ in His resurrected and risen glory. That's your outcome. And I think that's the main point that Peter is making uh, through all of this of Christ making, He's raised from the dead, He's making proclamation over these spirits, whether they're demonic or human. Either one at this point fills the, the interpretive uh, point. And then He closes at the end, Christ at the right hand of God, gone into heaven, after He subjected angels to Him and authorities and powers to Him, which either could be human authorities and powers, although many commentators think that the authorities and powers are also different uh, categories of angels, demons really. But notice what this verse is saying. That Christ did not ascend to the right hand of God the Father till after He subjected demons to Himself. Now what that means is, obviously, demons still have a lot of influence in the world. But in some way, their power, their influence has been greatly restricted and limited. And we can see this in other verses. For example, Colossians 2.15. That God disarmed the rulers and authorities having made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him. That is, through Christ. So on the cross, Jesus brought a defeat to the demonic realm. We see this also in Hebrews chapter... Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death He might render powerless Him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So in some way, when Jesus died on the cross, He rendered the devil powerless. Now again, Peter's going to go on in chapter 5 and say, look, the devil's like a prowling lion looking for someone to devour. So he still has great power in this world, but He's defeated. And His power has been restricted. You say, well, in what way has it been restricted? Well, I think this is where the Revelation 20 passage fits so perfectly when it says that that Satan will be bound for a thousand years so that he might no longer deceive the nations. So the nature of his restriction 
is that he would no longer be able to completely pull the blanket of blindness over the Gentile nations so that very few of them are ever saved in the Old Testament. But when Christ disarmed the angels, let me go back, When he subjected the angels and authorities and powers to him, that subjection meant, I think, in light of Revelation 20, that the, that the demons, the, the, the fallen angels, could no more prevent the gospel from spreading throughout the Gentile world. So that now the church is primarily made up of who? Jew, believing Jews or believing Gentiles? Believing Gentiles. The gospel is spread throughout the world. And that's the nature of the binding in Revelation 20. So that Satan would no longer be able to deceive the nations. Now the nations are coming to faith in Christ. Christ subjected the demons. The angels here, He doesn't have to subject the good angels. I mean, they're already subjected to Him. So we're talking about fallen angels and authorities and powers. He subjected them in His death. He conquered them as we read again in Hebrews 2 and Colossians 2. So that now the Gospel is spreading throughout the world. And now, He is at the Father's right hand. He has defeated our demonic enemy. Now their final judgment, of course, will take place when Christ comes back, when they're cast into the lake of fire. But they have been defeated. They have been subjected to the Rule and reign of Jesus Christ on the cross. Just real quick, this is a part of the typology of the Old Testament, the Passover. We're all familiar with the Passover lamb is a picture of Jesus Christ. The Passover lamb was slain to save who? The firstborn, right? And the author of Hebrews describes the church as the firstborn. We are the firstborn in Christ. So, Christ is a Passover lamb and He died to save His people from their sin. But on that night when that Passover lamb was slain, we read in Exodus 12, verse 12, God says that I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt... I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And this is all a picture of what Christ as our Passover Lamb would accomplish on the cross. The Passover Lamb brought judgments upon the gods, the demons in Egypt as a foreshadowing, a picture of the true Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, that when He dies on the cross, He brings judgment upon the demons as well. He is the true living Lamb of God. And there are judgments against the gods and demons are behind the gods as a result of Jesus' death on the cross. So all of this is to encourage those suffering to look to Jesus Christ. Christ suffered too. He suffered innocently. He suffered for our sins. But look at the end result of His suffering. He triumphed. 
He was raised from the dead. He's now sitting at the Father's right hand. And Peter is saying, you believers, you're in the midst of your suffering phase now. But look ahead. Look at the glory. Look at the victory. Look at the triumph that we will share with Christ in the future. So let that help you to keep a good conscience. To be faithful to Christ. Because ultimately, we win in the end. A great final example of someone who shared this understanding was Stephen. Stephen who was martyred that we know of in Acts chapter 7. And we read about this when Stephen was preaching to all the Jewish hierarchy, the leaders in Jerusalem. And he said, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hard in ears and always resisting the Holy Spirit, you're doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. And when Stephen said that to them, the next verse goes on and says that they were cut to the quick and they began to gnash their teeth at Stephen, grinding their teeth in hatred and anger towards Stephen. And then it says, and being full, referring to Stephen, and being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And what's so neat about this is he is suffering, he's being persecuted. Now, he could get all discouraged by that, but no, he sees a vision of Christ on the throne standing. He sees a vision of Christ in triumph and victory. And that encourages him to keep a good conscience, to affirm his faith in Christ. And it says that they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. What encouraged him in his, in his potential moment of weakness was to see the standing, risen glory of Jesus Christ. And then he acknowledged that by saying, I see the Lord standing at the right hand of God. And, and then he said, Lord, receive my spirit. But it was a vision of that victory, that triumph that Christ had, that one day he would join in moments. His, his spirit would be joined with Christ in that victory and triumph that encouraged him to keep a good conscience, to keep his faith professing, his witness of Christ strong. And that's what really Peter is saying. Peter is saying to these believers who are being tempted to violate their conscience, don't do it. Stay faithful to Christ. Because even in the midst of you suffering for righteousness, Christ has won the victory and you will share in that victory as well. And this is what he wanted to say. So, you can get into all the details which we'll struggle with later on, but don't miss that's the main point that drives this whole section. And Lord willing, we'll try to pick it up 
uh, from here next week and make a little more progress in trying to understand some of the challenges that lay ahead. But uh, Peter's heart is to encourage the saints, to give them boldness, to give them a strong faith, a good conscience, so that they stand firm in the midst of suffering. Because even in the very end, we're going to triumph just as our Lord did when He was raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God the Father. We will be with Him. Stay faithful until that day. May God help us all. Let's close in prayer. Our Father God, we thank You for this passage, Lord, that just does encourage us, Father, that so often times we're tempted to live and make decisions based upon just the passing temporal values and dangers of our own day. But Lord, give us the grace that we might stand strong in faith, that even if we must suffer for righteousness, that we will not fear them. For those who persecute us, they will be the ones to suffer shame on the day of judgment. But let us look beyond the suffering and see the glory of the triumph, the victory of Jesus Christ. Because He has promised that we will join Him there one day. And may our eyes be fixed upon Him and gain strength in the midst of our own trials for today. So Lord, give us grace, we pray. In this way, for Christ's glory, we ask it. Amen.